0: If you've got little ones that typically go to children's worship in the treehouse, then they can be dismissed now. You don't have to um, have them dismissed, but turn to John 12, please. pray. Lord, this morning I want to pray for Kevin Herbert and his family. Lord, I pray that Kevin is beholding as he engages you in the Word, as he is about the agonizing and wonderful work of shepherding and eldering and pastoring. Lord, I pray that you are giving him a wisdom and a wonder in the Word that is overflowing, first of all, into his life and invading every area. And he's growing more and more captivated with you. I pray that that is spilling over into home. I pray that his marriage and his family life is a uh, little micro-earth with a micro-gospel being lived out in the way that he loves his wife, the way that his wife loves him and follows his leadership. Lord, I pray that that people, the Ridgecrest Baptist Church people, are growing in wisdom and wonder and worship, and pray that we are teammates in a shared ministry and never in competition, and pray that we are our fellow worshipers. Pray that this church will uh, serve as a complement to what you're doing in and through that church, and that you'll make for a robust, salty, bright, aromatic people in this community through the complement of churches that are represented here. Lord, I pray for um, intangible partnership that uh, might take place in cubicles and warehouses and neighborhoods to where we're shared worshipers with the Lord that's plenty enough to uh, share and a commission that's a wonderful privilege. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray for this people. I pray for myself. I pray for a sweet privilege. I thank you for a sweet privilege of preaching newly and engaging the Word newly, and sharing it, and exposing it. Lord, I pray for this people, for a, um, an arresting engagement of Your Word that leaves us different, that leaves us beholding and captivated. Lord, I pray that You will guard us from just going through the motions, getting church on. I pray that You'll guard us from being a people that are just um, bringing You sacrifices and not bringing You a heart with affection. I pray that you'll guard us from being a people that are void of adoration, but that you will awaken that in us and create that in us, arrest us with the uh, sweet glory of you and your Son. Christ's name we pray, amen. I feel like I've got a job this morning of herding cats. In preaching on where we're going this morning, I um, I feel like kind of in some ways that what I'm doing is passing out soup to you, but we don't have any bowls. You just have to kind of hold it in your hand, and um, obviously you can appreciate with those images that likely you can appreciate that where we're going in these next few minutes is into a real intangible place, a place that is not. Um, I've preached on it some as it's come up in John, but I feel like I'm a kindergartner in this, and if you've ever heard kindergartners talking to each other, that may sound a little bit like these next 30, 40 minutes or so we spend together, and really it is going to sound like a kindergartner giving the depth and gravity of what we're about to engage, but we'll do the best we can as kindergartners together to engage it with uh, childlike faith. And ask the Lord to reveal to us what He's about in this passage. And John chapter 12, verse 44, it's really a few verses here through 50 that we don't really know where Jesus was when He was speaking this, when he were saying these words. We don't know who the audience was, we don't know the circumstances. It's just kind of a weird insertion here in John chapter 12. And the context doesn't tell us a whole lot other than John wanted it to be here and that it happened. We don't know when it happened, but Christ said these words. So we know these are from the, these words are from the mouth of our Lord. And the way this passage begins is really a place that's kind of stopped us down and slowed us down from really breezing through it. The passage in verse 44 begins, "...and Jesus cried out, when the one who scooped the oceans and piled up the mountains and buckled the belt of Orion..." And cluster the Pleiades, when he cries out about something, I think that we can stop for a few Sundays and engage and consider what he might be saying. Yeah. Albeit a herd of cats. So this morning, we're going to engage it. At, last week, we began to engage this passage, this urgent cry from Christ, and last week, he showed us that... In this passage, these two verses, 44 and 45, whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. It's not a terminal belief. When you believe on Christ, it doesn't stop right there. It's going beyond him to the Father. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. What we considered last week is that to see Christ is to see the invisible God. And that that's worth crying out about. Even if at first blush, we look at it, we go, okay, well, I don't really get that. It doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. But when we considered last week that God is white-hot holy, that to see His face, nobody can live and see His face. When we consider this white-hot holy God is revealed, explained, and described in the person of Christ, then we go, okay, now I understand why you're crying out. Now I get it considering the white-hot holiness of God and the godness of Christ, I'm amazed that Mary just didn't spontaneously combust when she was carrying Him in the womb. I'm amazed that a stable with cows in Bethlehem didn't just explode on Christmas morning because of His holiness, that Galilee, that Judea, that Jerusalem were not consumed by just His mere presence. That is a miracle as far as I'm concerned. This Christ, what we considered last week, is that He explains the inexplicable. He describes the indescribable. He reveals the invisible God. He cries out because this matters. This has everything to do with worship. Today, we're going to consider the second diamond of this urgent cry. Look at the passage again. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I hope that you can appreciate the tempo of those two verses, that they sound a lot alike. And the similarities there are on purpose, because what you need to do is connect verses 44 and 45 to appreciate that those are saying the same thing. That to believe on Christ is to believe on the one who sent him. And to see Christ is to see the one who sent him means that believing is is seeing that's worth crying out about and to appreciate the difference between seeing and what is meant here i want to introduce you to a new word it's kind of an antique i like antique words because they're different seeing could be as common as hey i saw amy wade driving around town this week in her little white honda civic honda whatever that is crv Or I saw the kids eating breakfast this morning. Or I can see you right now sitting here looking at me beyond this spotlight. That's not the same scene that's talked about here. So I'm going to give it a new word. It's really a word that is appropriately translated from the original language. And it is the antique word behold. It's not a word that we use very often. Behold, you're eating breakfast. Behold, there's Amy Wade. It's an unusual word, and I want to appropriate it. I want to engage it. In fact, what I'm going to do, I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to scratch out seeing in my Bible, and I'm going to write beholding right there because I want us to get that this is different than seeing my kids eat breakfast. What he's talking about here and doing with Christ is unique. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to kind of have two parts to this sermon. In the first part, I want to introduce what beholding is not. And in the second part, I want to introduce what beholding is and how to do it with two escorts. But first, I want to introduce you to the gravity of beholding. Just because it's not a common word, just because it's something we never have really maybe thought about, we maybe have never heard a sermon on, likely you've heard a sermon on it, but you just weren't paying attention, John chapter 6, verse 40, I'm sure that at some point in my journey of faith since the age of six that I've heard a sermon or a lesson on what it means to see and behold Christ, but I've never really engaged it before the last couple of years or so. So I want you to appreciate that this just isn't kind of an option. This isn't just kind of a, um, a nice to have when it comes to the faith that I, he's beholding. I want you to appreciate how urgent this is. Look in John chapter 6 verse 40. These are words from Christ. Christ says, for this is the will of my Father. Okay, I hope so far you're paying attention. For this is the will of my Father, the one that made Sinai quake, the one that parted the Red Sea, the one that spoke creation in existence from nothing. This is His will? Okay, let me pay attention then. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks, that's the same word, beholds the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, I'm paying attention because those two things connect. They're really a restatement of the same thing. They're brothers and sisters in the same family looking and beholding and believing. Those go together. And the ones who are looking, in other words, beholding and believing, that thing connected will have eternal life and will be raised up on the last day. That's pretty important to me. Given the gravity of eternity, and given the consequences of what it means if you're not the benefactor of that, I'm paying attention. I think beholding matters. Turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is a prayer from Christ praying for believers over the ages, not, for, not just for his disciples then and there, but he's praying for you and me. Sometimes I bet that you get a letter from the staff or one of the elders that they're praying for you, and I, I hear from you at time, from time to time that, hey, that means something to me. I appreciate that. And sometimes I get an email or a letter from one of you saying, hey, I'm praying for you. That means a lot to me. Read what we're about to read as if Christ sent you that letter. I'm praying for you. I'm asking my Father for something. The gravity of what He's asking for would hit you that this is pretty important. And listen to what He prays about in chapter 17, verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also put Your name in there. Put the believers at cross point Fellowship in there. Father, I desire that the believers of Crosspoint Fellowship, whom You've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. That you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. To behold my glory. Think beholding is important? Beholding and believing go together as one, one family of faith, of true faith. And that that is what is, is involved when salvation is to come about. And then this here in this prayer, Christ is praying for us that we will behold his glory. I think beholding, however a herd of cats it may be, I think it matters. So I hope I've arrested you with the gravity of it, but you may still be thinking, which is where we're going in the next few minutes, well, what is it? Okay, this herd of cats, what is it? If this thing, beholding, is believing, and if believing is salvation, I want to know what beholding is. First, I want to introduce you to what beholding isn't. Beholding is not behaving. Beholding is... Not behaving. I feel like as I'm pastoring, both here and at home, as I'm a shepherd at home. I feel like as I'm teaching and preaching each week on Wednesdays and Sundays, I feel like that I'm walking across along the edge of a cliff. Christy and I years ago we went to a, a national park it's called Zion National Park, and there's this thing called Angel's Landing at Zion National Park, and it's 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 this this ridge that goes out into this valley that has sheer cliff on each side and there are spaces along this angel's landing that are no wider than this center aisle with a couple thousand foot cliff on either side of you and there's kind of like a little chain that you can hold on to it's a frightening experience And I feel like in some ways as I'm teaching and as I'm preaching that I'm walking along that cliff because as I preach on holiness as I preach on walking in a manner worthy of the gospel as I try and teach my children to live like you bear his name I realize that as I'm walking along the edge of that cliff that I'm a breath from misunderstanding all of it so that it's no longer the faith at all. It can become a behavior message rather than a beholding message. Think about this for a moment. If you were to do a poll and ask people, what does it mean to be a Christian? You'd probably get kind of a list of negative responses, of, of don'ts. Some of those don'ts, don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss. In some cases, don't dance. A little list of no's. That as I consider that that's the mindset of some people about what it means to be a Christian, a good Christian, is you don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss. That's a behavior message. And what I realize as I hear that, I think that's a Christianity that's not worth forsaking all. If that's all the faith is, I pass. If that's all the faith we present to our community, well, no duh. No thanks. you ask the same question, you're going to get a list of do's too. How many people believe that being a good Christian means that you read your Bible, you pray, you fellowship with other Christians, and you go to church? If we were to do a little poll, that would be most people, and that may be most of us. That is not what it means to believe and behold Christ. Beholding is not behaving. The faith is so easily reduced to a regimen of do's and don'ts we don't realize it, but we will slip off the cliff in that. We are off the cliff altogether. when it's just a regimen of do's and don'ts. We will slip off the cliff of true faith to a whole nother gospel. We go to a whole nother place with us as a performer and no longer a worshiper. And in that place, works is at the center. And we are not under works anymore, guys. We are under grace. This regimen, this do's and don'ts regimen, this behavior sort of Christianity becomes a God in and of itself. And guess what? It is not a saving Christ. That gospel is not a saving gospel. It's important to realize that we are prone to this. And I think what might be behind this sort of mindset this behavior sort of Christianity, what might be behind it is our tendency to kind of look for the minimums. I used to do it in school. When I was in school, I got a syllabus from a teacher. I'm like, okay, what's the least I have to do to satisfy this teacher? Okay, I kind of like making B's. You know, C's is just, A's is not that important to me. A B. I'll be satisfied with a B. What's the least I have to do to satisfy the teacher to where I make a B? That is so built into us. What is the least I have to do to keep you off my back, mommy and daddy? What is the minimum that I have to do to stay out of trouble? We can so treat God like that. And before long, we're not beholding, we're behaving. We do this with our teachers, we do this with our parents, and we can do it with our God. And while we might be behaving with that sort of mindset... While we might be meeting the minimums, that is not beholding. That's behaving. Turn to John chapter 6. I'm going to show you an example of two groups of people. Well, one is just one person and then a group that wrestled with this sort of mindset what do we have to do to make you happy? Where's our syllabus? Give us the details. What do, we do to have to, or what, what do we have to do to please God? Here's an example in John chapter 6. And I want you to see Christ's response in both of these occasions. You're going to see what man is prone to. You're going to see what we're prone to. And you're going to see what Christ's response is. And this is going to point us toward what it means to behold. Jesus has fed the multitudes in John chapter 6. He walks across the Sea of Galilee toward Capernaum. High step in the high seas. He gets across the other side, and this crowd that followed him around in verse 25, they found him on the other side of the sea, and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? What they really mean is, how in the world did you get here? We didn't see you walking around the edge. And Jesus answered them. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves, Your stomach, your stomach has led you here. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. What is that food? That's the question. And he's about to answer that question. That food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on Him God the Father has set His seal. Now here's the syllabus question. They said it. The crowd said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What is the, the minimum for the B? Really, if we want to be technical, how do we pass? If it's pass, fail... We're listening, so how do we pass? And here's what Jesus says. What are the works we must do to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, singular. Get it, don't miss it. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So if believing is beholding, then our work, what we are to be about, is beholding. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's one thing on the list. And it's behold, believe on Him whom He has sent. That's our job. That's our call. That's our privilege. That's what the people of God are to be about. Turn a couple pages back to John chapter 4. Here's another person that was kind of asking the same syllabus sort of question. Jesus and the disciples are passing through Samaria... And they're thirsty and hungry, so they stop at a well outside of Samaria. And and, um, the disciples go into town to get some food. And Jesus is sitting out by a well, and he's talking to this woman. And he asks her for a drink, and they kind of have a dialogue that goes back and forth. And By verse 19, she recognizes she's talking to a man of God. She doesn't understand who he is yet. But in verse 19, she recognizes, hey, this is an authority. I might be able to kind of find out some scoop here. what's on the syllabus in terms of pass and fail. So in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Where's the temple supposed to be, Jesus? That was her question. I want to make God happy. I want to pass. I want to behave. So just tell me where to worship. And here's what Jesus responded point of that is he's looking for worshipers, not practitioners. He's looking for beholders, not behaviors. I was thinking this is a dangerous illustration, but I've never, that's never really scared me before. So here we go. Veggie tales. You know that I've mentioned veggie tales often. Uh, these are our videos, by the way, that we have at home. I want to preface all that. Luke watched the VeggieTales video, or Daniel did, the day before yesterday. I think Luke joined in at some point. VeggieTales. You've heard me refer to this before if you've been here for a period of time. But oftentimes I refer to VeggieTales as their treatment of the Old Testament stories kind of topically with a message that's void of God's redemptive character and frighteningly void of grace and mercy and cross and Christ. Where is it? I don't know where it is, but here's kind of a collection of the four that we have here. Lessons, really, that are on what I would say are on morality minus the Christ. Here's one. Whether you're a king or a kid, God wants us all to think of others first. Don't miss all the fun in King George and the Ducky. Okay, here's one. Kids of all ages. Here's another one. This is uh, Josh and the Big Wall. Kids of all ages will learn a lesson about obedience in this hilarious retelling of the classic Bible story, Josh and the Big Wall. Okay, here's um, Veggie Tales, Lord of the Beans. It's a tale of good versus evil with beans. Okay, right there. And then here's another one. VeggieTales God wants me to forgive them. God wants me to forgive them? Contains two fully animated stories that teach children a biblical perspective on forgiveness, yet there's no mention of the cross, there's no mention of grace, there's no mention of mercy, there's no mention of my Jesus in here. I'm not condemning all veggie tales, but I'm telling you that we can teach our children moral things without teaching them to worship. We can teach them to behave without teaching them what it means to behold. We can bring up a bunch of children that are well behaved that don't know what it means to worship. They don't know why we're supposed to well behave, be well-behaved. They don't know why we're supposed to live in a manner worthy. They just know we're not supposed to be selfish. And we're supposed to forgive other people. We don't know why. We don't know where that forgiveness comes from. We don't know where the model for forgiveness comes from because this is frighteningly void of Christ. So I'm not saying throw all your veggie tails out. We're not going to. But I tell you what I am going to do. If my children, if I prop them up in front of the TV and put on this video, I'm going to make sure that I round it out with an explanation. <laughs> I'm going to round it out with an explanation and say, okay, now that the video is over, let me open my Bible and show you what real forgiveness is. Let me show you. See, the message in these is that we can make God happy by our performance. We can make God happy by being faithful like Daniel. Or being brave like David and Goliath. And we've got to round that message out, people. When our children, we've got to teach them that, no, you cannot make God happy. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need the blood of Christ. And what makes God happy is believing on him whom he has sent and beholding that Jesus, not, be, not just behaving. Some of the nicest people I know are pagans. And when I say pagans, I'm not talking devil worshipers. I'm talking about people that just are void of the faith, of faith in Christ. Some of the nicest people I know don't believe on Jesus. Being nice does not make you Christian any more than wearing a cowboy hat makes you a cowboy. Any more than eating a bite of manna makes you an Israelite. I'm not condemning veggie tales, I'm just encouraging you to round it out with a desperate message on beholding. We can teach our children to be well-behaved and never teach them to be worshippers. Beholding is not simply behaving. The reality is that if you're beholding, behaving takes care of itself. (laughs) That's the crazy thing. When you teach and train to the heart, shepherds, when you're growing in wonder at home at the gospel and our Christ, behavior kind of takes care of itself over time. Now that we've considered what beholding is not, I want to consider how to behold with two escorts. The first escort is creation. Turn to Psalm 19. I really think there are only two escorts to beholding. Psalm 19 is a passage that will kind of introduce you to the first one. I introduced the first one because I think it's the lesser of the two. Although powerful, it's the lesser of the two Instruments to escort us into beholding. Psalm chapter 19, page 456 of your pew Bible. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day-to-day pours out speech, and night-to-night reveals knowledge. I was traveling with, the, with my family recently. We drove up to Pittsburgh for an eye exam for Evan and Luke, and... Um, we drove over, to pen, over across Pennsylvania and then came through Gettysburg and then over to D.C. and down the East Coast. We stopped in Columbia, South Carolina, and then down to Georgia. We covered like 15 states in about a week and a half. And uh, we had a really neat time together. But one, one of the things that we did while we were driving, I was working on memorizing Romans. I, I, I'm, I'm, about, I'm into chapter 2 right now, but I was working on chapter 1 while we were driving. That's a great thing to do while you're driving to memorize Scripture if you have any sort of commute. But while I was working on that, Christy was working on Psalm 19 with the children. And they were memorizing this, so I was hearing it over and over and over again. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day-to-day pours out speech. And night-to-night reveals knowledge. And as I'm hearing that over and over again, it's kind of finding a little place in me over time. And we found ourselves in Columbia, South Carolina, with plans to go visit a place called Congaree National Park. Congaree Swamp. It's just outside Columbia, this swamp is an incredible place to visit. Christy and I visited there frequently before our children were born. And even after Evan was born, Luke wasn't born yet, so we hadn't done that then. But Congaree National Park is unique. It's one of the last remaining swamps of its kind in the world. And as if you've ever been in a swamp before, you know that swamps are full of cypress trees. It's got these just tremendous cypress trees. that, You know the roots of cypress trees, they form knees is what they're called, where the roots pop up out of the ground. And some of these cypress trees were so big that they just had hundreds of knees surrounding them, sticking up out of the swamp. Huge cypress trees. And then that, something else that makes this, that, that's not really that unique about a swamp, but what's mixed in with, this, with these cypress trees are these huge loblolly pine trees that are like almost the size of a redwood. Huge trees. And this swamp is really cool because you go out in it. first you go to a visitor center and then you go out on this boardwalk that's three or four miles long and you can walk out through the swamp and experience this thing without being waist deep in mud and dealing with mosquitoes. It's really a cool time for us, for it has been for me and Christy over the years and we had plans for bringing our, our, our kids there. And by the time that we unloaded out of the van, the complaint started. And you can imagine with a 4-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 10-year-old that, you know, a walk around the park, if it doesn't involve a video game, um, a ball or a bat or a little puppy running around or something like that, that might be kind of hard to stomach, you know. So the complaint started after we got out of the van. We walked into the visitor center. And in the visitor center, there's a lot of that interactive stuff that kids like. So the kids were having a good time in there. And then we're like, okay, let's go walk through the park. And then the complaints really started. And we started out on the boardwalk, and we went about a quarter mile or so, probably every quarter mile or so, there's a a little bench set up there, a little wooden bench. And after listening to these complaints, Christy and I are looking around, just enjoying this beautiful, beautiful swamp. Spanish moss hanging out of these cypress trees, just hanging almost down to the ground. Just incredible sight. We stopped on this bench, tired of listening to the complaints, and Through a sweet work of the Lord, he kind of connected the dots of us memorizing Scripture with where we were and what we were doing. And I said, you know what, guys? I want you to think about something. I want you all to share with me first the verse that you all are learning. So Christy and the kids together. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. I said, okay, I want you to think about that and I want you to listen. Just listen, which is really necessary for us. Two of our kids are visually impaired. They can't see the top of a cypress tree. They can't see loblolly pine that's hundreds of feet tall, or hundred, I don't know, big. But they can hear some stuff that I can't even hear. And we sat there as a family, the five of us, sitting on a bench, one of the sweetest times I've ever experienced with my family together, and we worshipped. We worshipped as all of us together began to listen. Two crickets and birds and a woodpecker trying to drill a hole in a cypress tree. And we heard the wind through the treetops of these loblolly pines. And we heard frogs. And We worshiped together as a family. And the rest of that trip together, we didn't make the whole journey. We went about another half a mile or so, Maybe. And turned around and came back, but the whole trip was, Hey, look at this leaf. This is a huge leaf, Daddy. That's right, Daniel. Who made that leaf? God made that leaf. Why did he make that leaf, Daniel? For his own glory. Why did he make these big trees, Daniel? For his own glory. Why did all these sounds that we're experiencing, this creation that's so diverse, this symphony of sounds, because it testifies to the glory of God. Day-to-day pours forth speech, if we'll but stop and listen but you got to turn off the TV. And you got to go outside. And you got to sit down somewhere and look up and go to school. Or listen. Take the iPod out of your ears and listen. And go to school. And behold the glory of God. And here's the cool thing. You're not just beholding The Father in that you are beholding the Son. Hebrews chapter one verses one and two tell us that Christ is the agent of creation. John chapter one verses one through three says that the Word was there in the beginning and that the Word created. Colossians chapter one verse seventeen says that Christ is the one in whom all things are held together. As we're listening to cicadas that are so loud, we have to talk loud to hear over over the cicadas. We are listening to the glory of God. We're not worshiping creation. We're worshiping the God of creation. And the symphony of sound, the things that we see, they testify to the glory of God. Whoever wrote that psalm spent some time outside. Whoever wrote this song, maybe it was David. Yeah, it says Psalm of David. No. Yeah, Psalm David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I can just see David sitting on the rooftop. The ambient light from Jerusalem is down. He's looking up at the heavens, and he's seeing these stars. He doesn't know that there are billions of years of space up there, or billions of light years of space. He doesn't know that there are galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies. He just knows it's big. But we have more information than he has. We know that there are billions of light years of space. And we might think for a minute, that seems kind of excessive. Kind of a waste of space. But then when you read a passage like this, the heavens declare the glory of God. (gasps) It's no waste. That infinite space full of stars and suns and moons and planets. If it's supposed to testify to the glory of God, it better be big. There's no wasted space there. And we could engage and enjoy this glory if we would but sit and go to school. And engage it. There's a certain time of year here where the cicadas, those little locusts that, you know, climb out of their exoskeleton that sticks to a tree, you know, you get it, you scare your kids with it. <laughs> those things, when they're so loud that you have to talk over each other? Man, go to school. Say, God, you made every one of those. They make weird noises because you made them that way. If we would but go to school. Creation is a wonderful escort to the glory of God, the glory of Christ, the beholding. But you've got to turn off the TV and step outside and look up and go to school. His fingerprints are all over creation. Second escort into beholding is the Word of God. Turn to John Chapter Eight. Thursday this week, Thursday evening, Christy and the kids and I, yeah. I always get that mixed up. And me or I, Christy and the kids and I went to the symphony. I I better get that right if I'm talking about the symphony because we got a sound educated for going to the symphony. But Thursday night went to the symphony and it, man, was awesome. The Dallas Symphony Orchestra comes to Greenville every year. They've been doing that for 30 something years. And we've lived here four years and I've never been. I think Christy may have gone before, but I was ashamed that I've never been because it's that good. They don't travel anywhere else except Vail. And then they come to Greenville. <laughs> That's pretty awesome, man. I mean, and it was really incredible. With a couple of low-vision kids, we, we take advantage of the privilege of sitting on the front row whenever we go to stuff like that, which is necessary. But, I mean, it was awesome sitting right under this, this orchestra when they, were going, when they were playing Tchaikovsky and Schumann. If I'm not saying that right, some of you know who that is, then just forgive me. Some of you have no idea, so I'm safe. Schumann. We were at this symphony and the second piece was from Schumann, 300 years old, something like that. There's this Russian cello soloist. Cellist? I hope I'm saying that right. I'm revealing my ignorance about symphony, but I aim to learn. This guy named Yuri Anshelovich was playing. What they did is they took, they brought this big box out it wasn't big. It was a foot high or so. And they propped him up on that thing. The guy's probably 70. They set him up on this thing. He's right next to the maestro. He's got the orchestra surrounding him. He's right in front of us. I mean, he's as close as me and Bill Ruth right there. And we're probably closer. And this second piece he goes into, he has no music in front of him. He can't even see the maestro. It's him and and the music, this invisible expression that's coming, welling up from within him through this instrument. And we're watching this guy, and he was the show. He was the show, this Russian, the guy that started playing at the age of nine, or his first concert was at the age of nine, is playing this thing without music because it's coming from in here. This guy is adoring Schumann. He is adoring this music. And what I realized there is I watched this guy who's literally breathing the music. He was so close I could hear him breathing. And he's going, his hands are going all over the place. And and his breathing is in in, in step with the music. And there are times where he'd stop breathing because the music would slow. And I'm like, breathe. (laughs) And then he'd start breathing again because it's going fast. And his hands, even when he wasn't playing, his fingers were still moving up and down the fret. This guy was worshiping, albeit worshiping music. And as awesome as Schumann is, Schumann doesn't compare to the gospel because Schumann does not save. As wonderful as that music was, it's not truly timeless like the gospel of Christ. But as I was seeing this guy and watching this guy and considering this guy and his passion and his satisfaction with the movements, the crescendos, the allegros, the fortissimos, I saw his passion over the form and the context of it. And the heart of this Russian cellist towards Schumann's concerto is just a taste of what the heart of the worshiper is toward God's gospel. It's what it's supposed to be. Look at John chapter 8. Verse 30, Jesus is preached about being the light of the world. And verse 30 says, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Our definition of being saved and salvation and things like that means that there you go, there you got it. They believed. But then he says, here's the character of the true disciple. He goes on, verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, that same bunch, he says, if you abide in my word, You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, if you worship me through that word, if you behold me through that word, if you move with me through that word, if you breathe with me in those stories, in those movements of Christ, in that cross, then you are truly my disciples. As I watched that old man passionate about Schumann, I thought, man, that ought to be the people of God about the word of God. Because it's our escort into seeing and beholding His face. And I will guarantee you that a true labor and work in the Word will yield this sort of passion. You wonder why I'm passionate about what I'm saying right now? It's because I poke and prod and kick and scream all week long and rage over this word. Try and show me your face, Lord, so I can give people a glimpse on Sunday morning, so I can shepherd my family in worship and wonder and beholding. That's hard to fake. And it's hard to keep silent about it when it shows up, too. But it's a work. It's a labor. The guys that were enjoying Schumann the most the other night, was that old man who'd probably played it since he was a little bitty kid over and over and over and over again. He knew every movement. He swayed with every change in tempo. And the people right behind him that enjoyed it second were the rest of the orchestra who'd gone over it over and over and over and over again. That's the way the people of God should be about the Word of God. If you ever get to a place where you say, Oh, I got that, I'm going to move on, then you better keep reading until it gets you. To where you're arrested with what you're seeing. Read a book of the Bible. Pick a book like Ephesians. Read it every day for a month and see if that book does not come alive. It's already alive. Really, all it's doing is wakening you. The Spirit will waken you to beholding through the Word. On the way home after the symphony, we were asking Daniel... What he thought. Daniel, man, he loved Tchaikovsky. Man, it was he was getting so excited. They have kind of this military martial sound that comes up during part of it, the sonata form. That's right. <laughs> that's right. I'm throwing my expansive knowledge around it. We got a, a band leader in here that's laughing at me right now like you're a terrible geek. <laughs> this this martial sound where Daniel, I, we looked over at Daniel and Daniel was just... Oh, that's awesome. He's looking over going, that's great. And afterward, we're in the car like, Daniel, did you like that? He said, yeah. He said, I want to keep that music in my head. I thought to myself, Lord, may we keep your word in our head. May we keep the sweet music of the revelation of your son in our head through the word. By memorizing scripture. You might be like, "Man, I've heard that so many times. I got a terrible memory." I've used that lame excuse for a long time. Really, the really the excuse behind that is it's not a priority. Let's just be honest. If it's a priority, you can memorize it. If you have a commute that's more than 10 minutes and you're not memorizing scripture, man, I don't you're wasting your time. You can memorize gobs of Scripture. And it's when you memorize it that these passages just come alive. Like, whoa, where'd that come from? And you're worshiping. And you'll find yourself in Congaree Swamp or some version of that. And a dot will be connected. And all of a sudden, worship is born. And your family will never be the same. And Congaree Swamp will never be the same. Memorize it. Gnaw on it. Feast on it. Listen to it. Eagerly engage it when it's preached and taught. Read it over and over and over again till you sway with it, till you move with it, till you weep with it with your eyes closed, until you breathe with it. Because we behold through it. Lastly, I want to encourage you. How to handle these escorts. Turn to Psalm 33. I'll show you a couple of brief Psalms. I'm going to show you the character of our treatment of these escorts to beholding. How should we treat these escorts? I'm going to hit about, let's see, one, two, three, four, five Psalms very fast. Just a verse. Psalm 33, verse 3, page 463 of your Pew Bible. Sing to him a new song. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 96. Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Psalm 98, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Psalm 144, verse 9. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you. Psalm 149, verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. You cannot behold Christ through creation or the Word without engaging them Newly. How the psalmist sings is how the believer, the beholder, beholds. Newly. You might feel like last night I got out and I went to school. Well, there's tonight. You might feel like I've read John 12 before. Well, there's tomorrow. Read it again. And let it keep on exposing the glory of God. And behold him with an I-N-G. Every reference that I read about beholding and believing are all present tense. They're participles, verbal nouns. That's like you with an I-N-G. Believe-ing. The believing one is the beholding one. It means that it's a present tense thing. You can no more rely on yesterday's beholding than the Israelite could rely on yesterday's manna. You might know the story of manna and quail for the Israelites. They could only gather as much as they could eat in that day, except for the Sabbath. They could gather an extra portion so they wouldn't have to get out on the Sabbath. And that's a sweet picture of what it is for us for beholding. We have got to behold today. The memory of the day that you surrendered your life to Christ may be sweet, but it's old manna. You can't behold on that today. You've got to behold Him today. A recollection, a recollection of some experience with Christ years ago may be sweet, but it's old manna. Where's your manna today? Where's your beholding today? It's present tense. A marriage cannot survive on the memory of the wedding day. Think about that. And you cannot characterize the beauty of a marriage by how it was on the wedding day. In fact, there's some wonderful wedding days that didn't last very long. And there's lots of beautiful marriages that had a pretty lame bubblegum ring wedding. Beholding is today. And just like a rich, beautiful marriage is made up of hand-holding and face-to-face eye-contact conversations... And dates, and romance, and true enjoyment of each other. Just like a sweet marriage is made up of that, beholding is made up of a today thing. The Minus the romance. But adoration, enjoyment, beholding, savoring. And you've got to work at it, trust me. Just like a good marriage, you've got to work at beholding but not for the reason of meeting the minimum. Honey, what do I have to do to please you today? If I said that to my wife, what's the minimum I have to do to satisfy your expectations of me today? (laughs) Would you call that a beautiful marriage? What's the minimum I have to do to get by? A beautiful marriage is going to be, how can I adore you today? How can I be your best friend today? How can I walk with you and experience life together today? That's the character of the beholding one and the believing one. It's out of true enjoyment and a desire to love newly. You can do that through every painted sunset, through every dazzling night sky, through every cicada crescendo, through every sermon through every teaching, through every movement of Christ's story, through His miracles, through His message, by beholding them newly. The beauty in that, when you do, is that He transforms you from glory to glory. and He draws you from darkness to light. And there's no other way to be drawn from darkness to light but by beholding. That's where we're going next week. To look at God's redemptive character of being a light, uh, being one who draws his people from darkness to light. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I confess and uh, actually enjoy the fact that I'm a kindergartner in this because there's so much left to learn. And there's such a sweet journey in front of us. And I pray that you'll find me and my family and this people, this church family, about the task. I pray that you'll put shepherds about the burden of beholding. I pray that while the world screams at us to look and enjoy and savor and behold everything that it offers, I pray that we can see sweet gospel, the scandalous gospel. We can see the grace reached low in the cross. We can see your design and your purpose, your redemptive character all over the Bible. And that we can see your plan for glory. And that we can respond appropriately by beholding. Lord, we confess that we can't muster this. We confess that we can't create it. We beg for it. In ourselves and in those other believers in this community. We love you, Lord. We turn this time over to you for worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.